Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Guy Kawasaki with me. Guy is the Chief Evangelist at Canva and has been since 2014. He is also a podcast host for the Remarkable People Podcast, which has featured people such as Jane Goodall, Angela Duckworth, Ariana Huffington, and many more. Guy is also known for working for Apple two different times, first as a software evangelist from 1983 to 1987, and then as their chief evangelist from 1995 to 1997. Guy is the author of 15 books. His latest books are Wise Guy, Lessons from Life, and The Art of the Start 2.0. Guy, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, of course. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thankful to have you on. Uh, so, you know, for people that don't know you as well, um, can you take us back to the beginning a little bit? You know, <laughs> the beginning you, of time <laughs> uh, of, of, of your time, um, <laughs> where you grew up, your family situation, sure. Uh, sure. what type of kid you were, things like that. <laughs> uh, selective memory here, but I was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. I come from a lower middle class family. Uh, I went to school up through high school in Hawaii, and then I went to the mainland to Stanford. After Stanford, I went to law school for two weeks and quit. Uh, and then I went back to Hawaii, worked for the lieutenant governor of Hawaii for about six months, then went back to the mainland to go to UCLA in the MBA program. While I was there, I started working for a jewelry manufacturer. Uh, that is the company I eventually went to work for after my MBA. I stayed there about four years, and then I got recruited into Apple as Apple's second software evangelist. My job was to convince software and hardware companies to create Mac products. After that, I left to start a, a, a tech firm, and then I returned to Apple as Apple's chief evangelist, and then I left again to start another tech firm. And uh, that's it. And about eight years ago, Canva reached out to me. So I've been Canva's chief evangelist for about eight years. And so today I'm Canva's chief evangelist and I have a podcast called the Remarkable People Podcast. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so, you know, I, I saw that you are a third generation yep. um, uh, from J Japan. Um, how much did your Japanese background shape you? Well, a <laughs> uh, seemingly simple question. Uh, you know, definitely there were values taught about filial piety and, you know, taking the high road, noblesse oblige, not that that's a French term, and, and uh, the value of school and education. Uh, having said that, I will also tell you that if you were Japanese-American, third generation, I was born in 54, so kind of right after World War II, um, at that point, the, the Japanese-Americans, uh, in Hawaii anyway, were trying to prove that they are good Americans. And so if you're trying to prove that you're good Americans, you don't necessarily try to preserve your old culture. You're trying to show that you're American, not Japanese. Mm -hmm. So um, th certainly there are some cultural values, values, but I wasn't, you know, hardcore Japanese nationalistic upbringing at all. I'm just as American as I was going to say Donald Trump, but that's not a good example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I guess one, one aspect that you, you mentioned was growing up lower middle class and, yes. um, you ended up going to a private high school. 
Um, I'm curious, as you look back at that period of time, do you have any um, pieces of advice? I mean, I don't know if you felt self-conscious um, being, you know, in an environment where your classmates may have come from wealthier families and um, um, how you navigated yeah. that. Well, so I went to a, a private boys school and it's co-ed now, but I went to a private boys school, college prep in Hawaii. And Hawaii has a, a public school system and a private school a private school system. The private school system is more academically oriented, you know, college prep. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say that there were some people, in fact, probably most people were from wealthier families than mine, but I never felt like, you know, I'm the oppressed poor person. Um, we didn't have a lot of money, but I didn't know we didn't have a lot of money. And I didn't know that, you know, there are rich and famous lifestyles. Now, I wasn't completely ignorant of that, but uh, I, I basically took lemons and made lemonade. So, I'll, you know, I'll tell you a few stories. So I was uh, hijacked for my lunch money twice on a public bus system. And uh, once uh, a friend of the family took me for a ride in a Porsche. And, you know, a lot of people, when you ask them what motivated you when you're young, they say, I, I want to dent the universe. I want to make the world a better place. I want to change the world. I'll tell you what, I just wanted to change the car. And so th that... I, I, after I was robbed, I said to myself, you know, guy, you, you just you got to live in a better part of town. And then I got this ride in this Porsche. And I said, guy, you, you have got to be able to buy a Porsche someday. So those three things really motivated me. I kid you not. And, you know, insipid and shallow and materialistic and just et cetera, et cetera. As those stories may sound, that's the God's honest truth, man. That really motivated me. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, you made it uh, to Stanford, as you talk about, um, you know, in your book, you talk about not traveling and, um, you know, graduating yeah. within three years as being some of the things you look back on. Um, is there any other piece of advice that you would give in terms well, of taking advantage it, of your yeah. undergrad? So, so I graduated from Stanford in three and a half years. And I, as I, as you said, I never went to a Stanford overseas campus because at that time, Stanford, Stanford, London, Stanford, Japan, Stanford, Italy, you know, I don't know, wherever. But I never did that because I wanted to get through school as fast as possible. That was a big mistake. And so if any of you are out there in college and you have the opportunity to, to go to an overseas campus, by all means, go, because this may be the last time in your life where you can do that. So, you know, it ain't happening again. And by the time you're wealthy enough to do it, you're going to have too many responsibilities. You'll be too tired. You may not have your health. So do it now while you, you know, while you're young. And I would also say advice for college students is it. I think many people have this desire to find the perfect first job because, you know, it's going to determine the success and happiness of the rest of your life. And I would say that nothing is further from the truth, that your first job, you'll be lucky if you remember your first job. My first job was counting diamonds. So, you know, did I see a path where counting diamonds would lead me to working for Apple, which would lead me to entrepreneurship, which would lead me to writing and speaking, which would lead me to Canva, 
which would lead me to podcasting. Not at all. There is there was no plan like that. And so my first job counting diamonds in college in the in the in the summers, I was a truck driver's helper for a construction company. So we would drop off the materials to build a house. You know, I mean, I wasn't interning at Goldman Sachs. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, I wasn't yeah. interning at McKinsey. And I wasn't, you know, starting a not-for-profit foundation so that I'd have a college essay. Um, so I guess the the what I'm trying to cut this down to is chillax about your first job, man. It, 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 you know, in the long run, especially for people who are getting in the job market today, over the course of their careers, they're probably going to have 10 jobs. And so, you know, trying to thread the needle and worrying obsessively about the first job being perfect, it ain't going to be perfect. Just get over it. Just go for it. Yeah. No, that's a great piece of advice. Uh, so you went to UC Davis for two weeks yep. uh, and then you quit. Yep. Um, I'm curious, you know, was, you know, how tough was that mentally? Did you feel like <laughs> a failure telling well, your friends yes. and family? Well, certainly I felt like a failure. I truly felt like I let my family down. You know, I thought my father was going to tell me to commit suicide. Um, but he, he basically said, you know, son, it's okay. And as long as you make something of yourself and of your life by your mid twenties, so he gave me five more years to do something, <laughs> something significant. And um, you know, I never expected that answer, and thank God I got that answer. So yeah, I just hated law school. I, they were trying to just, you know, I just couldn't take the pressure of law school. And 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 for me, you know, being a good Asian American, that's the first time I quit anything in my life. Mm. So you know, one of the fears I think people have of quitting is that you're going to be a loser for your rest for the rest of your life and it's a slippery slope so you quit law school then you quit this then you quit that and you know 50 years later you're a loser um i i don't think quitting like anything is necessarily going to be the slippery slope that ruins your life now if you start quitting everything yeah you probably will end up a loser but um you what know, one data point doth not make, well, a line or a plane. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, you then, uh, as you said, um, took some time, went back to Hawaii, and then came back to UCLA to do your MBA. Uh, I'm curious, as you look back on that time, is there any advice you would give to current students on making the most of yeah. the MBA experience? Well, See, that was such a different time. Okay. So it's hard to, it's hard to draw lessons from my life because back in the eighties, 1980, not 1880, back in the 1980s, when I got my MBA, you know, getting an MBA was a legitimate fence or barrier you had to jump over. So you distinguished yourself from people who merely had BAs and BSs by having an MBA. And so, you know, if you wanted to go to work for large companies like McKinsey or Goldman or, you know, whatever, then you had to have an MBA. That was just it. Um, I don't think that's true today. And so I don't think you can say from my life, well, guy would not be successful as an entrepreneur, as a podcaster, as a writer, speaker, blah, 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 if he didn't have his MBA. I, I cannot tell you that I believe that the MBA in my career path was 
a humongous factor. And in, in tech in particular, I will tell you that, um, well, I'm out of touch because I haven't, you know, obviously interviewed or anything for a while, but um, I would say in most tech firms, an MBA is neutral to negative. It's definitely not, oh my God, he went to Harvard, he has an MBA, you know, he's on the fast track or she's on the fast track. I don't think that's true. That may be true in Goldman and McKinsey and Accenture and Bain and BCG. It's not true in tech firms. Yeah, yeah. Um, You talked about a little bit, but um, your job after um, your MBA, you were working um, in the diamond and fine jewelry industry. (laughs) Yes, yes. you, you talk about in your book, um, learning a lot about sales and, um, yes. you know, I, I'm curious, I, I found, you know, as, as we're talking, you know, obviously most people, whether they're undergrad business students or MBAs, they try to go after the Goldman Sachs and things of that nature. And, um, you had a very positive, <laughs> you had a very positive experience working for a smaller yeah. firm and curious if you could just well, talk about that. Well, so I am one data point. Right. And for all I know, I'm the only data point. And there may be millions of other people who said, oh, going to Goldman Sachs and Accenture or BCG or Bain or you know McKinsey was the best thing I ever did. So with that caveat that I am a mere data point, um, my problem with going into finance is that you know, what, what it's going to come off harsher than I wanted to, but like, how are you making the world a better place by being in private equity? How, how are you making the world a better place by figuring out derivatives? Um, you could, honestly, I think you could apply that to a lot of the, the cyber um, currencies right now. How are you making the world a better place? And so that's my issue with finance. And my issue with consulting is that, you know, like what makes you think you're qualified to tell companies how to run when you've never run a company? When, you know, you went to Yale for your undergrad and you went to Harvard for your MBA and yeah, you studied a lot of case studies, but now you're going to tell an entrepreneur or a company owner or a large company, you know, this is how you should run your company based on what? Based on you reading cases? I don't think so. So, and I, and I would, you know, going back a little bit, also when the, the finance diatribe, I would say that especially applies to venture capital. The venture capital is something you should do at the end of your career, not at the beginning. And you know, one of the value adds that venture capitalists should add is experience and wisdom and been there and done that to younger entrepreneurs who have not done it and not been there and not done that. So if you went to Yale as an undergrad and then you went to Harvard for your MBA and now you're a venture capitalist, like when have you had to raise money? When have you had to hire people? When have you had to ship a product? When have you had to pull back a product? When have you had to apologize for the bugs in your product? When have you had to fire people? Never. You've been studying your whole life. So how can you possibly be a venture capitalist? Yeah. All good points. You know, after that, you spent a year um, at Eduware Services. You talk about um, being very grateful for this tech company to yep. allow you to break into the tech sector. I'm curious, you know, obviously you've worked at Apple and 
um, you know, now Canva. Uh, if there is someone out there struggling with breaking into the tech sector, um, what would your yeah. advice be? Yeah, sure. So just just to uh, put some meat on those bones, um, basically, I was in the jewelry business. I got an Apple II. I fell in love with Apple II, and I wanted to get into tech, right? Because you know the jewelry business is a beautiful personal business. I learned a lot about selling in that business, but it wasn't a high flying growth business. You know, there are only so many fingers and necks and ears in the world, and so I I, I wanted to get into tech. I just fell in love with computing. But let's just, uh, to put it mildly, even with an MBA, but I was an MBA who'd worked in the jewelry business, no tech firm would touch me, not not the smallest firm, you know, nobody, until I found one company in Agoura Hills, California called Edgeware Services. And the reason why they hired me was on the way to CES or Comdex, their director of marketing got in a car accident. So he was indisposed for a few months and so that created a vacancy. And so that's how I got into yeah, the software business. And so, you know, what's the lesson there? The lesson is that uh, I would say, don't be proud that, you know, yeah. Okay. So in a perfect world, you would get a Google internship and then they would make you an offer and you'd be on the fast track at Google, Microsoft, Apple, Cisco, Yahoo. Well, maybe not Yahoo, uh, Pinterest, Facebook. Well, maybe not Facebook anymore, but you get my drift, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, and so you want this, this perfect starting job with this perfect title at this perfect company. Well, my advice to you is just get your foot in the door. I mean, yeah, take an extreme. If, if you get hired at Google to work in their fitness center, Take the freaking job. I'm telling you, just take the freaking job. You know, you can look at your life and say, okay, I'm going to work in the Google Fitness Center. This means that I'm going to keep the weights racked and I'm going to, you know, apply disinfectant to the dumbbells after the real employees work. Or you could say, hey, I got my foot into the door at Google. I'm actually training the executive vice president of marketing. And so I have gotten to know her. And I have, you know, impressed her with my intelligence. So she asked me to come in and interview for a marketing job. Just get your ass in there and, you know, worry about the rest later. Yeah. Um, After that, you moved on to Apple. Um, You know, obviously, given the hindsight of of time and the (laughs) 2000s and, um, you know, how well, um, you know, Apple has you know, become, um, I'm curious when you, when you first joined and were interacting with Steve jobs, did you feel like, you know, he would become, you know, the revolutionary. Oh, there was never, there was never any doubt that Steve jobs was unique. Never. I mean, from the moment you met him, you knew this guy was, he had a different operating system. Now, clearly he got fired, but he came back and I I just, you know, he's off the scale. He was off the scale. There has never been anybody like him. Um, And maybe there never will be another person like him. You could make the case that Elon Musk is the closest thing to Steve Jobs, except Elon Musk is like, 
man, he's like getting bizarre these days. So uh, he, he, you know, you knew sometimes in life you meet people and if you put your ego aside, you can say to yourself, you know, that guy or that gal, she is just on a different plane. She has a different operating system. She's a bird and I'm a freaking, you know, pig in the mud. And that's what I felt. Steve Jobs was a very intimidating person. I, I literally was scared of him humiliating me, which motivated me to do some of the best work of my life. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm curious, you know, there's a lot of negativity um, given towards the amount of hours employees had to had to work and, and mm. things of that nature. Um, Where? You know, at Apple. Yeah. Um, when? During... During that time period of, yeah, um, I'm curious if if you felt, um, you know, if you felt like you wanted to quit at points, or how did you like nope. four years? It, you I, know, the mental I, fortitude. I don't know who you're getting this information from, but I don't know of anybody who was in the Macintosh division who regrets it and who wanted to quit because. You know, it was like working 60 hours a week or 80 hours a week or whatever. I don't know anybody like that. And in fact, I would say that is one of those experiences that you are, you should be so lucky to have worked for Steve Jobs in the Macintosh division or a Steve Jobs in a Macintosh division once in your life. Um, so, you know, yes, the hours were long. Steve was brutal, et cetera, et cetera. But if somebody ever tells you that and they're speaking from firsthand experience, then ask them, well, so do you regret doing it? Do you wish you had not gone through that experience? And I would be astounded if they said yes. In a sense, it's like to use an athletic um, metaphor. There have been some very, very hard ass successful coaches, Bobby Knight at Indiana, Vince Lombardi, Green Bay Packers, who I'm dating myself. Most people are saying, who the hell is he talking about? But let's just say they were I mean, the Super Bowl trophy is still named after him. So well, every, okay. everyone well, you know. should know that. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, there have been some hard ass coaches and you think, oh, it must have been terrible playing for him. You know, he he ran you until you fainted from exertion. He didn't give you water and and he abused you and humiliated you and he made you play through injury. And he demanded 365 dedication to the sport. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, you won Super Bowl titles and I, I bet you, I bet you if you asked players who played for Vince Lombardi, none of them would say, I regret that. I wish I played for a coach or I wish I was a student of a teacher who was easy on me, who I could bullshit, who I could get away with crap. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um you know, I'm just curious because you have a lot better insight and those of us that grew up or were born later don't have this. <laughs> Obviously, we see the movies and things like that. I'm curious, like in terms of that was such a pivotal time um, that you were there, you know, yeah. 80, 83, um, Wozniak left. Um, well, 80, Wozniak 80, has never left. To this day, he's an Apple employee. Okay. Um and then, so, yeah, I mean, I got that wrong. In 85, I believe, Scully was hired. and 85, Jobs resigned. Um, you know, I, I guess in terms of the leadership and how things were, 
Yeah. Are there anything else that comes to mind when you think about that time period? Well, I, I guess I learned several things. One is just because you have a better product doesn't mean you're going to win because Macintosh was a better product. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is uh, nothing's easy. <laughs> it was not easy. Uh, lesson three is, you know, things are never as good or as bad as they seem. And they weren't as bad, I thought, when they were bad. And they weren't as good, I thought, when people thought it was just great. Um, so, you know, now, admittedly, I was inside the reality distortion field, but, um, you know, I, I had to lay people off. I, I, I was lucky I was never laid off. And you know, I suffered a, you know, some PTSD from working at Apple, but I would not trade that experience for anything. It's, I'm telling you, it's just like playing for Vince Lombardi or Bobby Knight and, you know, maybe Elon Musk. I don't know what Elon Musk employees think. Yeah. Um, in your personal life, you ended up meeting uh, your wife uh, during this time period. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, do you have any, uh, you know, pieces of advice on on love to, to the single <laughs> people out there? Well, uh, listen, again, you know, this is 1986 that I met her. And let's just say that I'm not sure what I did with her would be legal today. Because, <laughs> you know, you're definitely you're definitely dating somebody in the company, right? So having I would say having relationships. Now we were never in in sort of the same organization, so there was no path in which I was her supervisor or all that. So you know, I'm not talking about me tooism, okay? Here, I'm just saying that I think in today's companies, it's pretty much frowned upon that you date anybody in the company, right? Yeah. And uh, I dated somebody and married somebody, and I'm still married to a woman I met at work. So, you know, I'm on wife 1.0. I'm a lucky guy. Yeah. Um. After that, you started some, um, you know, ACS as the CEO mm -hmm. um, and, you know, began the uh, trip to entrepreneurship. I'm curious, you know, um, do you have any advice on leaving a job and, and timing of that and yeah. um, how to make well, that decision? I'm sure no, that I, wasn't easy. It wasn't easy and I'm not sure I did the right thing. But, <laughs> you know, I left Apple twice, uh, 87 and 97. And after 97, I saw Steve a few years later and he offered me another job and I turned him down. So you know, I turned down or left Apple three times. If I had not done that any one of those three times, I would have made a boatload of money. So one of the lessons you can take from my life is that you know, sometimes the grass is not greener. And what you should do is you should fertilize and water the grass you're standing on. Now, you know, there was nobody at the company in 1987 or 1997 who, quote unquote, knew that Apple, that Apple would be a trillion dollar company. Nobody. And if anybody tells you that they knew Apple would be a trillion dollar company, they are lying. They are pathological, delusional liars. Nobody knew that. So that's some comfort. But um, 
it's not clear to me that trying to optimize a job switch every year or two is the optimal path. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. Um, I guess I'm curious, you know, um, also saw in 93 to 95, you were in a business. Um, you know, is there any uh, major piece of advice that you think of when you um, think of entrepreneurship or the lessons yeah. you learned from well, those two? Well, I literally wrote the book on entrepreneurship. It's called The Art of the Start, version two. So if any of you are entrepreneurs and you need a single book that really covers the topics, all the topics you're going to face, product development, recruiting, sales and marketing, finance, HR, everything is in that book. I meant it as, you know, this is the single volume you need to buy. Now, there are a lot of great books that dedicate 200 pages to the minimum viable product, right? So obviously, but uh, I dedicate 20 pages to that concept, but I cover 10 or 15 concepts. So uh, I, I think the, the most important advice I can give an entrepreneur listening to this is the business of an entrepreneur is to create customers. It's not to raise money. It's not to quote dent the universe. It's not to do all that kind of stuff. Your job is to create customers. And if you create customers, you probably will dent the universe. You probably will be able to raise money and you probably will profit from it. But the, the key is it's all about the creation of customers. And that I saw from Peter Drucker actually. Yeah. Um, in 1993, I believe you became a parent for the first time. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, how did, how did fatherhood change you? And do you have any advice yeah. for people? Well, that I think that parenthood, I have four children now, is the best single thing that ever happened to me. All the fun, all the material things, et cetera, et cetera, are nothing compared to the joy that my children have brought me. Nothing. There's not even close to the joy that my kids have brought me. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, you talk about it in your book, but, um, uh, you know, adoption uh, was mm -hmm. a part of your process for, mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess, do you have any words of, you know, advice or education well, that you want to give to anybody considering adoption? Well, I, I think adoption is one of the most beautiful things in the world that to um, help children who might not have had the life and the opportunity were, were they not adopted is a beautiful thing. Having biological children is a beautiful thing too, but adoption is, you know, it's got, it's got that different sort of perspective that you're, you're taking someone who would have struggled, would have had a difficult life and giving them a better life. But I will tell you, so, you know, right now you're thinking, okay, guys, so you did the kid a favor or you did the kids a favor. But I, I tell you, I've come to believe that the adoptive parents benefit as much as the adoptive kids. There's no question in my mind. Yeah. Do you, do you uh, feel like, I don't know if you ever had this conversation, that your, your kids ever felt pressure to live up to your level of success? Um, I have never had that conversation. I have never pressed that issue. Uh, I have never, um, you know, pushed them to go into tech or go into podcasting or go into writing or go into whatever. I am not a tiger dad. 
Uh, I mean, there are certain lines you can cross with me. Don't get me wrong, but I am not a tiger dad who, you know, wants their preschool kid to be taking calculus and start a foundation by the age of 10 and be a concert pianist, 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 whatever, celloist, flutist, flautist, violinist, whatever. Uh, I'm just not that way. Maybe it's because I'm third generation. Maybe by the time you're third generation, you lose your edge. Fourth generation, you have no edge, but so I'm not like that. I just, I think if your kids are productive and healthy and pursuing something of value, and it could be a value to them, not necessarily to you, uh, that's as good as it gets. And you don't have to go to Yale for me. You don't have to get an MBA, prestigious job or anything. You know, I'm... If you're healthy and happy, I'd say that's more than anybody can wish for. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned before, you came back to Apple in, in 95. Um, is there anything about that time period um, that you'd like to talk about? Well, when I came back to Apple, Apple was supposed to die. I came back to preserve the Macintosh cult. So... Uh, again, the lesson is, you know, things weren't as bad as they seemed if you were on the outside. And uh, I really loved Apple. And so I came back and I hope I helped Apple survive. Um, <laughs> that's what I did. I maintained the Macintosh cult. And uh, it's, I, that's been maybe not financially, but it's been certainly one of the most rewarding jobs because, you know, I look at what Apple has become and I had a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after that, you started, I think, what became Garage Tech Technology Ventures eventually. Yep. Um, is, is there anything from that? I think that was 98 to well, 2008. Well, Technology Ventures, what we're trying to do is democratize venture capital so that you, know, you didn't have to be a venture capitalist to invest in startups. We're also trying to help the startup because there's only so many venture capitalists and they do only so many deals. So there are lots of potential investors and lots of potential entrepreneurs. We tried to be the market in the middle. And... Um, it was moderately successful. I wouldn't say, you know, it was a home run and, uh, it was a very interesting time, but, you know, one of the themes in my life is I like to democratize things. So uh, arguably Macintosh democratized computers, garage tried to democratize you know, investment, uh, Canva certainly has democratized design where you no longer have to buy Photoshop or Illustrator and you don't have to depend on professional designers or professional design department or you know stuff like that. You can roll your own. And so it's a, it's a consistent theme in my life that I like to democratize things. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I believe uh, is, you know, Canva as the chief evangelist. Um, I'm curious, you know, evangelist isn't a, a term that I, I've personally seen a lot of. Do you think it should be more of a role at, at companies? Well, well, first of all, where are you? I'm in Boston. Okay. So 
evangelism comes from a Greek word meaning bringing the good news. So an evangelist brings the good news. I brought the good news of Macintosh, making people more creative and productive. I'm bringing the good news of Canva, making you a better communicator because it empowers you to be a talented artist. So that that's what evangelism does. And uh, I I was the second software evangelist. So it it may be literally true. I'm the second secular evangelist in the world. The first was Mike Boich. And so I think it's a legitimate function if you have a great product or service that is good news. My only hesitation with the term now is that you know, I hope people keep straight that evangelism is different from evangelical, right? Because today in America, anyway, evangelical stands for Trumpist, you know, degradation of women's rights, gerrymandering. I mean, you name it, right? And so that, that nothing could be further from my desires than to do any of those kind of things. So I hesitate because people may not make the differentiation between evangelical and evangelistic. Yeah. Um, Canva's found a lot of success um, being a unicorn and, and things of that nature. Um, as someone involved in their leadership, how do you um, not put pressure on yourself and to do even, you know, crazier growth or things of that nature? How, how well, is that viewed? I Listen, I am, I've been there eight years. I am primarily outward focused. So truly the credit for Canva belongs to, well, in one sense, every Canva employee, but in another sense, you know, Melanie and Cameron and oh, the, the Cliff. I mean, Cliff, Melanie and Cameron, they deserve the credit. So I like to call this guy's golden touch. Some people think, oh, guy's golden touch is whatever guy touches turns to gold. So guy touches Canva turns to gold. That's not at all what I mean. Guy's golden touch is whatever's gold guy touches. And so Canva was rock solid, 24 karat gold. So I touched it. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking is, is something you've been doing um, for a long time now. Uh, I think you do over 50 keynote I used um, speeches <laughs> a year. Um, yeah. how, how, like, how did you become such a good speaker and yeah, engaging I, speaker where people wanted to I, always hire you? Listen, I, first of all, when you work for Steve Jobs, it's very intimidating that you think, you know, no one can possibly speak as well as he can. So listen, like, just like everybody else, I had a tremendous fear of public speaking. And uh, what turned the corner for me was the sheer quantity that after a while, when you have given 150 or 200 speeches, trust me, it just... I could give a speech five minutes from now to 50,000 people. It wouldn't bother me. 50,000 is a lot, but you know, I don't know, a thousand people. So I think it just comes with repetition. And you know, the, the so-called Malcolm Gladwell theory of 10,000 hours, where now you can blink to, to combine both of his, two of his books, uh, it, it was sheer repetition. And um, you know, if, if you do something long enough and hard enough and well enough and, you know, with enough grit, eventually you will master it. 
Yeah. Um, writing's also been a, a big part of your life. Um, the author of 15 books. Um, I guess, you know, do you have any advice for someone looking to be a first time writer? Or sure. So first of all, if you want to be a writer, buy a book called If You Want to Write by Brenda Euland. And she was a writing instructor at University of Minnesota. Now, if you're not wanting to be a writer, you want to be a videographer, artist, chef, musician, also buy that book. It's not just for writers. The word she used is writer, but you could be any of any creative function if you want to make movies, if you want to cook, if you want to make graffiti, whatever it is. Uh, so I recommend that book. Now, specifically for a writer, I think my recommendation is that, first of all, you write a book when you have something to say. A lot of people, they say, oh, I'm going to write a book because it'll help me with my consulting, positioning me as a, as a thought leader, as a guru, uh, increase my consulting fees and speaking fees, blah, blah, blah. And that's all totally, utterly bullshit. The reason why you should write a book is because you have something to say not because a book is an end, a means to an end. A book should be an end in and of itself. So when you have this burning desire to say what you have to say, then you write a book. It's not because you want to get consulting gigs. And that's number one. Number two is you got to write every day. Even if it's a page, you write every day. Now, having said that, I will tell you that that's one of the hardest things to do. Because uh, like many writers, I have this thing like I want to do everything else. And when all of that is clear, I can write. Well, guess what? That day never comes. So the fact that I've written 15 books is a minor miracle. <laughs> yeah. Um, you started podcasting, I believe, December of 2019 with the Remarkable People podcast. Yep. Um, do you want to talk about how you got into that and yeah, what, so, what you're trying to do there? Well, I, I had written a book called Wise Guy, and I was on a book tour, and I was meeting with many podcasters. And I, you know, I, I asked them, well, so how does podcasting work? Ah, I make 52 episodes a year. Well, how do you make money? I sell ads. Well, how many ads do you sell? I sell one before the thing starts. I sell one in the middle. I sell one at the end. And how much do you sell those ads for? Uh, 25000 for the first one, 15000 for the second one, 10000 for the third one. So I'm, you know, I can do the math in my head. So I say, you, you're telling me you make 50000 an episode, you do 52 episodes a year? I said, yeah. I said, why am I writing books? I mean, why am I writing books? I should just be a podcaster. And, and also podcasting afforded me the ability to, uh, well, it, it came out to this because of the pandemic that I, I didn't have to travel, right? So with a speech, you got to get on an airplane 50 times a year. With podcasting, particularly post-pandemic, I, I have not done an in-person interview for my podcast since maybe March of 2020. Yeah. So, you know, and at first, I got to tell you, at first I thought there's no way that this is going to work because you need to be there with the person. You need to look into her eyes. You need to, you know, sense the emotion. You need to build this trust, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm telling you, you can do all of that with, well, what we're doing right now, yeah. what we're doing right now. You, I Listen, there is no way in hell I would fly to Boston to do this interview. <laughs> now, maybe you would fly to me, yeah. but I would not fly to you. I would not take two or three days out of my life to do a podcast interview. Yeah. So, you know. Hopefully your audience says, huh, 
it still was human and warm and real, even though they weren't sitting next to each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, for a lot of the younger people in 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 listening to this, you're going to be viewed as a as a wise person, um, <laughs> given nice. your given your you know life experience and business success. Um, you know, do you do you have any regrets or any mistakes that wow. um, you think as you well, look back on your life? I, I quit Apple twice and turned Steve Jobs down once. That's three mistakes. Uh, I once was offered the opportunity to interview for the second CEO position of Yahoo, and I turned that down because it was too far to drive. So if you just took those four, that's probably two and a half billion dollars right there. So, um, you know, I've, I've evolved my thinking to always say yes and worry about it later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? Just coming back to my podcast. Okay. So yeah. hopefully the listener thinks that they have received some wisdom from me during this podcast, but I will tell you that my remarkable people podcast myself and my team, we are on a mission to make people who listen to our podcast remarkable. And so we reach out to people like Jane Goodall, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Christy Yamaguchi, Steve Wozniak, Scott Galloway, Angela Duckworth, David Ocker, Bob Cialdini. I could just go down the line. We're on episode of 140. And I guarantee you, if you listen to my podcast, not from me, you will get the wisdom and lessons and hindsights of truly remarkable people that will help you become remarkable too. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, I guess today, what, what motivates you and what, what, what's driving you? What's driving me is... Really, my I think my podcast is the best work I've ever done. And I want to leave a record. Uh, I want to leave something of great value so that uh, someday when somebody wants to learn, so someday when someone wants to learn about Jane Goodall, there's a lot to read about her. Uh, but I will tell you that my interview of her I bet you is one of the best sources of information about Jane Goodall, like what makes her tick. And so I, I want to do that 52 times a year so that forever people will be able to listen to my podcast or read the transcripts and glean the knowledge of these remarkable people. That's at the end of my life, which may not be too far away because I'm 67. I want people to say that guy empowered me. Guy empowered me. He made me remarkable, sometimes with his investment, sometimes with his employment, sometimes with his you know, advice, sometimes with his speech, sometimes with his book, sometimes with his podcast. But he em empowered me. Yeah. Do you, do you remember your last conversation with Steve uh, before he passed? Steve Jobs? Yeah. No. <laughs> I, listen, honestly, I was not in his inner, inner circle. Okay. Because, you know, like, when Steve Jobs came looking for you, 90% of the time, it was something to be afraid of. <laughs> so, yeah, no news is good news. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, I mean, I guess one last question is, yes. you know, I, I mean, everybody is going to view you as successful and everybody that's young is, is trying to become successful. I guess what's, what are your thoughts on, on that and what our mental well, mindset should be if we're in our um, early to mid twenties or thirties? Yeah. Well, I, I think your mindset should be for, oh, first of all, many people will tell you, pursue your passion. Right, pursue your passion, and you know, find something you love to do. Uh, I will tell you something very different. I think that you should open your mind to various things that interest you, and it could be software, hardware, writing, podcasting, making music, whatever. So you you have an open mind, and. As things pop up on your radar and they interest you, pursue them. Pursue them until you decide that you're not interested in it, or you can never be good at it, or you can never make money. I mean, in a perfect world, you'll find something that you like to do that you're good at, and you can make money. That's that's the you know that's the the golden Venn diagram. And to do that, you're gonna have to like drill a lot of holes to use another metaphor. And so I think the advice said, oh, pursue your passion. So a lot of people hear that and say, okay, so I'm, I'm 25 and I haven't found my passion yet. I haven't found this thing that obsesses me. I haven't found this thing that I'm willing to dedicate my life to. I'm a failure. I'm 25. You know what? I discovered podcasting at 64. Okay. So it interested me and it became a passion. So, you know, the test is, does something interest you? Then explore it. Don't think that you're going to be just dumbstruck, fall off the wagon, overcome with joy one day when you discover your passion. That's not how it works. Yeah. Is, okay. is there, yeah, yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to say on, on life? That, that listen to my podcast. Don't be stubborn just listen to my podcast i promise you and it's i'm not telling you that i provide a lot of wisdom in that i'm telling you my guests do yeah well guy i just want to thank you uh for coming on um for my anyone pleasure. that wants to to support you i guess is the best way to tune into the podcast that is the best way hmm? not only tune into the podcast but when you are blown away with the value it adds to your life I want you to evangelize it because it is good news. Yeah. Well, guys, okay. I just want, yeah, I want to acknowledge you and, and thank you for coming on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, and uh, all the yeah. best. Thank you. All the best to you and yours.